Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, and we are reading from verse 17 to the end of this chapter, verses 17 through 26 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you are a visitor, we encourage you to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and the book of Ecclesiastes follows Psalms and Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Chapter 2 from verse 17. So, writes Ecclesiastes, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, this is the word of God to us from this very strange book of Ecclesiastes. May the Lord bless that word to our understanding as we together begin to look at this passage and to expound it. Now, work is a four-letter word which is familiar to all of us, even to the youngest child who is here in the service this morning. It is the staple ingredient, moreover, in the lives of millions of men and women who serve in the world of agriculture and industry and academics and wherever their life's vocation and work has placed them. It is a four-letter word which evokes a response in every one of us down to the youngest child in this service. Because we either love it, or we hate it, or we're indifferent to it and use it simply as a means of living. Whether we're a workaholic, whether we're a shirker of work, whether we simply use it because it's there and it has to be done. And we look around on our world today and we see it's a world endlessly busy with work. The factories hum. 
The offices are staffed with a multitude of people. There are the machine shops with the whirring of machinery. There are the stores with the multitudes going in to buy. And the shop servers there behind the counters. There are our schools and our colleges and our universities and our research establishments. And you look out into the countryside, the world of fields and farms and fish ponds and forests, and work is taking place everywhere. And we're living, moreover, in a world that is obsessed with the problems of work, aren't we? The newspapers just recently carried accounts as their headlines on the front page of the strike by the ground staff of Eastern Airlines that has spread and now brought this airline to the verge of bankruptcy on top of all its other problems of industry and work. We read of the massive unemployment figures in other states, fortunately not our own state of Florida, we see the specter of old established industries now redundant because they fail to make the changes to new technology and the industrial doctors are called in to preside over their ultimate demise. Work and no work, employment and unemployment, the subjects on everyone's lips in these days through which we live. Now, isn't it very significant that the ancient writer Ecclesiastes was exactly where we are today? It's a living illustration of what we read about in chapter 1 of our book. But there is nothing new under the sun. But the same cycle is being repeated. The characters change. The problems may differ slightly. But in essence, it's the same situation that was there before. And if you wondered what was the theme of this section from Ecclesiastes that we read together this morning, you must have noticed that eight times over in our text, the word work or toil or labor occurred. In verse 17 and verse 19 and verse 20 and verse 21 twice in that single verse, verse 22 and 23 and 24, the theme is unmistakable. It is the theme of a world endlessly busy with the problems and frustrations of work. So what Ecclesiastes is doing is after searching for the meaning of life in enlightenment or wisdom or in enjoyment, that is pleasure, he now turns to question the world of enrichment through daily work. If these other two things cannot satisfy man's inmost need, as indeed we've seen they cannot, through enlightenment and through enjoyment, will the world of enrichment through our daily work satisfy man's inmost quest for the elusive meaning of life? Now, in this passage, in a very wonderful way, it seems to me, this great philosopher and teacher and examiner of life's experience does three things. He brings to us the frustrations of work. 
And then he brings to us the problems within work. And then thirdly, he brings to us so wonderfully as the passage concludes the way in which we can find fulfillment through work. Now look with me first of all at the frustrations of work in verses 17 through 23 as you have your Bibles open in front of you this morning. There are three observations that he makes which are as up-to-date as tomorrow's headlines on the newspaper. And the first of these observations about the frustrations which work brings into all our lives is the subject of ownership, particularly in verses 18 through 20. Do you notice what he says there? I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too, says Ecclesiastes, is meaningless. The problem of ownership, the frustration of ownership. Do you notice he's describing for us something that is very common in our workaday world today? A man is successful in business. He works to build up his enterprise. You see him there slaving and saving and scraping to put his business, as it were, on the map. He undergoes real hardships. He works long hours. His life is consumed over many years in establishing this business enterprise. And now he's growing old the years of retirement, the supposedly golden years are upon him. And he's dying, and he looks back, and he sees with some satisfaction the solid achievement of his working life. Yes, it has been solid, he says. Look at what I've done as I've slaved, and I've scraped, and I've saved. But then he looks ahead of him, and he sees stepping into his shoes is a son, who's very unlike the father. He's a scoundrel. He's a wastrel. He never had to work like his father. He's had it easy. He's going to take over this business and settle into it with ease as the business steadily runs down. And as Ecclesiastes sees these things, he's angry. Here is the original founder who is being mocked, as it were. It's all for nothing, he says. And he's heartbroken. But what he's saying to us is something that is still as applicable now as it was then. You go to work, you think, you plan, you work, you use your minds and your skills. What for? says Ecclesiastes to leave everything that you've achieved in your workaday life to someone else who may come in and waste it all. Everything we gain, we leave to someone else. Now, do you grasp the harsh reality of this? If you're out in the marketplace and you're buying a major appliance for your home, it might be a television set or a washing machine or a dryer. One of the things that 
you're bound to insist on is, is there a guarantee with this article I'm buying? It's costing me hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars. Is there a guarantee with it? So that I know that my money and my effort is not being spent in vain. But what Ecclesiastes is saying is that in the world of work, beloved, there's no such thing as a guarantee. Do you see it? It's so futile and senseless in one way of looking at it to pay the demanding price of spending all my working years giving out of my skills and effort when there's no guarantee that in the end there'll be anything left of worth at all. And the most painful thing of all, he says, is to think that an unworthy heir will inherit all my toil. As Hubbard says in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, death is the consummate swindler. I like that, don't you? Death is the consummate swindler. It takes away everything that we've gained. So there's the problem of ownership. But if you look in verse 21, there's another problem with work that Ecclesiastes has seen, and it's as contemporary as today's newspaper or tomorrow's newspaper. It's the waste of craftsmanship in verse 21. You see the man working there with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is saying to us, I'm not looking at work and the workman in a trivial way. I'm looking at someone here who's a skilled craftsman. It may be in woodwork. And this man is so gifted that he produces work that is exquisitely shaped and carved in all manner of ornamentation. Or in the world of leatherwork. Here's a man who sits for hours and hours at his bench etching out from this piece of leather, this very fine quality leather, decorations for a beautiful belt that will one day be around a man's waist. Or he's sitting there at his bench with the smell of leather all around him, fashioning an exquisitely made saddle for some royal personage to sit upon. Or in the world of metalwork, Here is a man who has toiled over the furnace, beaten out the metal on the anvil, and is now shaping it into some gorgeous ornament. A master craftsman, a master potter, whatever it might be. He's looking at craftsmanship, work with wisdom and knowledge and skill. He's not talking about the man who has no heart for work, the scoundrel, the layabout, the unemployed person who has no desire for employment at all, but one who has toiled in his work. Now, when you look at that verse, you might say, well, surely such toil would provide reason for working, some purpose and satisfaction in it. But Ecclesiastes looks not only at what the man is doing, But what's going to happen after he's gone? Verse 21 at the end. He must leave all he owns, says Ecclesiastes, to someone who has not worked for it. In other words, there'll be no appreciation after he's gone for what he's done. It will not be valued. 
very often by the person who succeeds him, the same argument as in the problem of ownership with work. I remember when I was in Scotland hearing the case of a minister who was a minister just outside of Aberdeen, whose name is still familiar to me, and he recounted a certain pastoral visit to an old lady in his congregation who had some exquisite pieces of furniture, and she'd recently moved to another and smaller house. And he visited her after she'd moved in, and he said to her, where's that lovely French drop-leaf table that used to be in your parlor? Oh, she said, that thing. My grandson had to take out the axe and chop it up because it was too big to fit in my room. And what a hard job he had. That was solid mahogany. They're not making furniture like that anymore. And my friend didn't recover from that experience for about three days. He was almost physically sick. Craftsmanship. No appreciation. No value. And what he's done as he's headlong on the path of work, this man, you see, he's stopped in his tracks. And he's turned around. And he's looked behind him. A long, hard look at the way he's come through all his working life with his wisdom and knowledge and skill. And he's filled with despair. Had all the effort and the discomfort and the painfulness been worth it, You die, he says, and it all goes for nothing. You pass it on so often to someone who doesn't value it. But you see, the third reason for the frustration with our daily work is in verses 22 and 23. And I just want to say to you on these verses that there's no biblical passage that I know of that paints a grimmer picture of what it costs to succeed in your work on human terms and how fragile that success really is. Look at verses 22 and 23. Do you sense the atmosphere there of perspiration, strain and toil and pain and vexation of spirit and insomnia, sleeplessness? The picture of the modern businessman today who's grown old prematurely. His face is wrinkled and worried and is there in his hotel room at the end of an endless day of round of meeting people and selling things and investing his product in new customers and he's worn out with it all and he's there in his room popping pills and looking forward to a sleepless night again. This is the currency with which we pay for the success that we can neither truly gain nor truly keep. How obsessive our human toil can be. So you see, the summary in verse 20 is just a statement of fact, isn't it? So in my heart, I began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. And it led him to the conclusion that began in verse 20, that you see in verse 23, what's the point of it all? Why 
bother with work, he says, when it's so futile and is filled with emptiness and vanity. But you see, we should thank God this morning that he doesn't stop merely with the frustrations of work. The second thing that I want to draw to your attention in the passage is the failures of work in verses 18 and 21 particularly. In course of describing his frustrations, this very wise and discerning man, Ecclesiastes, has begun to hint already at the causes why there is so much frustration in the workaday world. And he says in verses 18 and 21, in essence, it's because men have the wrong attitude to their work. It is this which gives rise to the feelings about work that we've been expressing. And again, it's so surprisingly and remarkably up to date. Even though the work that Ecclesiastes has been describing is perhaps in the saddler's workshop or trade between two villages. In our day, we're not thinking of the saddler's workshop or the potteries, the potter's uh, workshop, but we're thinking of the assembly line in the great factory, aren't we? With the constantly moving conveyor belts and the noises and the smells associated with the industrial movement. We're not thinking between tra- of trade between two villages, but international trade between nations. But still, the same fundamental attitude to work prevails. What is it? Well, it's twofold. It's again the subject of ownership and craftsmanship. Ownership. Look at verse 19. What Ecclesiastes says is the root of the wrong attitude is that someone else will have control. Notice the word control in verse 19. Over all that person's work. In other words, it's showing us that the craftsman or the workman when he was alive had his attitude to the work to work like this. It belongs to me. I'm the owner of this. I've slaved for it. I've scraped for it. I've saved for it. I'm the owner. One of the bitter things for me is that when I go, I'll no longer be the owner. Someone else will have control over all that I've done. Now, you see, that's the problem, isn't it? Why work doesn't satisfy under the sun. The owner can never be satisfied with work so long as he thinks he owns it. Because his empire is never big enough. Look at what's happening. Read the newspapers around you. The great firms, national and international, are subject of ta- subjects themselves of takeover bids. The little traditional trade that has sprung up in some small town of the South is the subject of a takeover bid by a bigger competitor. The empire is never large enough. We must extend it just a little further and then a little more after that. And I believe it was Rockefeller, that very wealthy American, 
whose name is a household word still, who was asked on one occasion, how much money is necessary for happiness? And he answered, a little more than you already have. And it's a vicious circle, isn't it? As wealth grows, so worry grows. Sleepless nights, popping pills, the wearing away of wealthy people, sedatives, more insurances to cover it all, more burglar alarms to protect it all. And even on the ordinary worker's level, there's still that problem of ownership where the man on the shop floor says, I want the same kind of increase proportionately that the chairman of my company has got, with no recognition usually on the shop floor that this man at least is carrying all the responsibility for the weal or woe of that company. And what we need to realize, beloved, is that ownership is a delusion. We are not really that at all. We are stewards, not owners. And all the houses we possess and the businesses that may belong to us and the bank balances that we've stacked up are only so much baggage in the end that we can't take with us. We've got to leave it all behind. As someone said in the day of your death, all that you will have is a piece of ground six feet by three and the winding sheet that you're wrapped in. And as Derek Kidner says in his fine commentary upon this passage, all our enterprises slip from our control. And you know, one of the great tragedies in the world today and sometimes in the church is that we will not learn the biblical lesson that man is not the owner. He is the steward of all that he works for and all that he possesses. Now, the second wrong attitude, you see, that lead to the frustrations of work is this question of craftsmanship. You would think, as I said to you, that if work fails us at the level of ownership, at least it shouldn't fail us at the level of craftsmanship because the craftsman delights in his work. That beautifully shaped piece of pottery, that finely crafted leather saddle that smells so exquisitely, quite apart from its look, that beautifully carved piece of furniture that is not the product of some machine gouging out the wood, but is the result of the deft skill, the handiwork of a man who is a master at his business. Surely there's satisfaction there. But no, says Ecclesiastes, for the same reason that you leave it all to someone who has not worked for it and often someone who doesn't value craftsmanship at all. Look around your world today. What do you see? The decline and fall, not of the Roman Empire, but the decline and fall of craftsmanship on every hand. You think of the mass of legislation today on our law books to guard the public against bad workmanship. There are building code standards 
There are standards for manufactured goods. There are guarantees that must be given by the makers of certain products, but their product will fulfill the promise on the label. There is legislation on advertising to prevent deceit because craftsmanship is no longer what it was. And what you're buying may not be the genuine thing that it's set out to be. All bearing eloquent testimony to the abandonment of craftsmanship. And you go into so many places of industry today and it's not the man sitting at his bench working with skills that have been passed on by his father from his grandfather and great-grandfather. But you see men sitting at machines or in the production line of a great factory doing the same thing over and over and over again in an endless repetitivity. And the soul has been cut out of work, hasn't it? And the average worker today is interested only in one thing in his working week, to take the wage packet home on Friday evening at four o'clock or whenever it is. He's just the man who turns the handle, who punches the button of the machine. What does he get out of his work? Craftsmanship has gone so largely. And the production line may have failed in terms of its, may have succeeded in terms of its productivity. But it certainly failed in the fruit it's creating in men and in families in this generation and the generations to come. Well, you see, in summary, on this question of men's attitudes to work, isn't this a very pessimistic view of work? Yes, it is. But this, you see, is where this man has come to, and it's an honest and it's a reliable conclusion. But it's all vanity. It's all emptiness in the end. And I think it's time we came to the same conclusion that he came to. What profit does a man have from all the labor that he undertakes under the sun? because this leads to the third and final point I want to make this morning. But there's not only frustration with work and problems with work, but thank God there is fulfillment through work in verses 24 through 26. Thank God that Ecclesiastes doesn't leave us with disillusion and discomfort, but he brings to our attention an answer. And how wise he is. He shows us why we need that answer first, in case we thought we didn't need it. And then at the very point where we're despairing of work, he says, now look, there is another attitude to work that makes it so different. At first sight, it seems too simple, doesn't it, for the baffling and complex problems of work, of employment and unemployment, of strife, between management and labor, of national and international trade agreements? What is his answer, basically? It is that there is a meaning and purpose in daily human work, however mundane it may be. But it all depends 
on our having a right relationship with God. And if you were to go to the politicians and the industrialists this morning and sit in their offices in the leather chair and look across that beautifully polished desk to the man in the distance and say to him, I have an answer for unemployment and for all the frustration that men have with work. And he says, what is it? And you say, it's God. What a fool, he would say to you, and send you out of that office as quick as he could. They would laugh us to scorn, wouldn't they? But this is the Bible's remedy. This is the only one that really works. Look at verses 24 to 26 with me. He says in verse 24, satisfaction is possible with daily work. Because, the end of verse 24 and verse 25, we do not have the power to bestow that satisfaction upon ourselves. It is something given by God. See how many times the word given occurs in these verses. And so the person, he says, who pleases God, verse 26, that is, the one who recognizes that work is given by God, he is the one who will have wisdom and knowledge and joy in his work. But the sinner, that is the one who works and leaves God out of his work, verse 26, will leave his, live his days in futility, chasing the wind. Because he's asking something from work that it was never intended to provide. And everything the sinner does in the end will benefit God's own people. He'll give it to them. And for the sinner, that is meaningless and vanity too. Do you see what he's saying? The industrialists and the economists and the businessmen of this world and the politicians bring God into this, they say to the workbench and the lecture hall and the factory floor and the production line. This is nonsense. But it's precisely what the Bible says. And as I finish this morning, I want to remind you of three things. There was a day in this country when the Protestant work ethic was honored and practiced and believed in. And I use the past tense advisedly. There was a day. And that Protestant work ethic, beloved, was nothing but a summary of Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 through 26. This is how the Christianized West achieved a position of prosperity and prominence in the world of industry and business. And by losing these biblical standards of work, we're in danger of losing everything that we have acquired. What were these biblical standards in the Protestant work ethic? There were three great guiding principles. First, honesty and reliability. Our forefathers were tradesmen and travelers, 
and ordinary workers like many of us in the congregation this morning. But they were taught from the cradle up that honesty and reliability were the standards that God blessed in daily work. These were the things that God was concerned about, that his eye was on me in the factory, at the workbench, in the office, at the lecture podium. And these qualities were preached to congregations from the pulpit Sunday by Sunday. But the Ten Commandments were for living. But the Sermon on the Mount was for real. And if you were a Christian man in the workforce, if you were a Christian woman in the workforce, these standards should be evident daily in your life to show that you were a Christian in reality and not in word only. Let me ask you this morning in your daily work and your business ethics, are you honest? Are you reliable? Do you make promises to your customers that you know you haven't a ghostly chance of fulfilling in terms of a delivery date? You should be ashamed of yourself as a Christian man. Do you enter into a business deal knowing that there are certain cards stacked behind the counter that you haven't revealed to the person who is your customer. Cards that you should reveal if you were dealing with honesty and reliability. Are you a man who pleases God? Is your work done as in his sight? What place does honesty and reliability have in your daily life? I remember hearing from another minister of a true incident of a young woman who was in a typing pool in Glasgow in Scotland and a new executive had been hired. He wasn't a Christian and he'd been there only a matter of months. Every time he passed the door where those ladies were sitting with their machines in the typing pool, he heard one machine that was consistent through the coffee and tea breaks. He would hear that one machine consistently, pattering on. And he said to his supervisor one day, who is that person who works that machine, that typewriter? Why do I hear a consistency there that is not from the others? Oh, said the supervisor, she's a Christian. She's a Christian! And he was converted through the witness of a typewriter being used by a Christian. Honesty and reliability in your place of work. But you know, the second thing about the Protestant work ethic in summary of this passage is that there was restraint as well. Our forefathers learned to live with low personal consumption, being content with less than they might otherwise have had. Didn't we read in the New Testament lesson this morning, Content godliness with contentment is great gain. And that contentment flows from a right relationship with God. But you know, what I see sometimes in Christian businessmen and others is quite different. They think of that text in 1 Timothy 6 in a different way from the way you and I thought of it this morning. 
like the Glasgow merchants of a century ago, when the port flourished and there was international trade and Glasgow was a great city of the world, which it isn't today. Those Christian merchants along the banks of the Clyde thought that it would be a good idea to combine godliness, contentment, and great gain. This is what some Christians are still endeavoring to do today. My friends, the principle of constraint and restraint is part of the biblical doctrine of work. In my own country in the years 1950 to 1980, the living standards of the British people more than doubled in 30 years, but also the number of days lost through industrial strikes moved from one and a half million days annually in that same period to over 10 million days. Because men and women in the workforce were saying, I, were saying, I want it better than it is. And if necessary, I'll rob my employer of his legitimate time to get what I want. Contentment flowing from a right relationship with God. If we were more content, it would enable the complex economies of our community and nation to begin to function as they should. And the third great principle in the Protestant work ethic was innovation. Biblical religion has always encouraged constructive changes. And in the Industrial Revolution, where there were riots among the workforce because new machines were taking over the work of men, it was from Christian pulpits that you heard the message again and again, changes must come, the world is changing, and you must change with it. And inventiveness and initiative and innovation have always been commended by the Reformed churches because this is the way in which men's genius and skill as gifts of God can be used ultimately for the betterment of mankind and the creation mandate fulfilled to fill the earth and subdue it. My dear friends, in conclusion then, what have I said to you this morning? There is frustration with work. There is a failure of work when you look at it under the sun. But beloved, there is a fulfillment in work as well. Let me ask you, have you lost your soul this morning? Feeling it's an endless round of the same repetitive things. Are you living under the sun? Or are you living as one who has come to the position of having a biblical view of work, looking above the sun to God who has given you work as a means of leading you to himself? Are you enjoying it as the gift of God from the position of living not for work, but for him. Can you say with him in verses 24 and 25 with Ecclesiastes, I see that without him, God, 
who can eat or find enjoyment in his work? My friend, do you say this solution is too simple? The answer is no. It would lead to a revolution within you. It would lead to Christ breaking into your life and through your life breaking into the lives of others as we saw in that illustration of the typewriter. When God takes over your life and gives you in your work practices honesty and integrity and reliability and innovation and restraint, People will say of you, there is a different atmosphere about this person. This office has a different smell about it, almost. Because there is a different attitude to daily work. And I want to tell you that this can become so natural that the teacher and the road worker and the motor mechanic and the manager and the lab technician and the university professor can unconsciously be witnessing to Christ by their attitude to work. Begin, beloved, to live like this, and it will become infectious for others. For Christ. Amen. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, in this lengthy exposition this morning, we have seen so many things. Help us to grasp these things, that we may not be hearers of the word only, but doers of it, and all for the glory of God. Amen.